Luke uh, 22, verses 39 to 65, and that's page 1058, if you have a church Bible. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not, be, not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going on, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant-gored girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You, are, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly, this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. And we turn now to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 4, uh, page 741. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and through the Lord make his life an offering for sin. He will see his offering and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. Sorry, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Thanks very much, Caroline. Tell how many of you have seen the film Titanic? If you have, you might remember what happens when the, uh, the ship begins to, to sink. And it's the sudden realisation that they haven't got enough lifeboats. Now, in the film, what you see is some of the, uh, the rich men shoving aside the women and children to get into the boats. And the British sailors drawing their guns and firing in the air to, uh, to stop they're happening. Now, according to witnesses who actually survived the, uh, um, the Titanic, in actual fact, that was completely different um, because the men did hang back and they urged the women and children to get into the boats. And apparently the richest man on earth at the time, John Astor, was on the ship and he too dragged his wife and persuaded her to get into a boat and refused to get in when others persuaded him to do so as well. There was um, a review of the film in the New York Times, and um, the writer asked the question, why had the producer and the director of the film distorted the reality of the event in such a way? And he answered the question himself by saying that none of the present-day audience would have believed it. They wouldn't have thought it credible. In his book, um, Scandalous, Don Carson interprets that as a, as a damning indictment of Western culture that 100 years ago, the Christian value of sacrifice was still in evidence. But in that short space of time, it's become so rare that history has to be distorted to make it believable. Well, as we'll see this morning, the self-sacrifice of Jesus was the only solution to a massive problem. Before we come on to that, let's just set the context for the passage that we've read. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the first part of um, Luke 22, 
which recorded the start of the events that would lead to Jesus' death and his resurrection. And as we said, everything up to then had been leading to that moment of truth. How would Jesus respond as the moment of his arrest became closer? How would his disciples respond as their master was taken away from them and they were left on their own? It was a dark moment as we saw Satan at work causing Judas to betray his master, causing Peter to deny his master. And yet Jesus was still in control. It was he who allowed Satan to tempt Jesus, who prayed that Peter's faith would be strong even after he had failed. We read about how Jesus enjoyed the Passover meal, his last supper with his disciples, and he explained how the bread and the wine would become lasting symbols of his bread that was broken, of his body that was broken, and his blood that was poured out for each one of them and each one of us today. And the last thing Jesus said in the upper room in verse 37 was that um, verse we had earlier on with the children. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And so with those words ringing in their ears, the disciples and Jesus head out through the city, through the streets at nighttime, across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. And as we read in other Gospels, they turn off into the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where we're told Jesus often met with his disciples. And here we witness the agony in the Garden. We see Jesus in anguish, praying earnestly, we're told, to the point where his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He's deeply distressed, he's overwhelmed, with sorrow. This is the hour, we're told, when darkness reigns. And in this very difficult and dark moment, Jesus gives the same exhortation twice to his disciples. He says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And in between that, he says these words here in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. What exactly does that mean? Those are powerful words, they are deep words, and that's what we're going to try and look at this morning. What did he mean? Well, I think think the place we need to start is understanding what is the will of the Father. And if we go back to the Old Testament, what is important to God as we trace the story of salvation through? There are two things that come out time after time. The first of them is the glory of God. And if we read the book of Exodus, that theme is repeated a number of times throughout that book. It's the reason we're told why God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. In Exodus 14, it says, The Lord says to Moses, But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord This isn't like a human seeking a greater sense of importance for themselves. This is people acknowledging the greatness that God already has as the creator of the universe. And so the commandments, the instructions that God gives to his people 
are very much to do with his glory. The first four of those more explicitly. Do you remember them? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now the problem is that humankind has rejected God's glory. As it says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People have rejected the glory of God. They've exchanged it for, for other things which they worship more than God. And the punishment that God set for this rebellion was death. Now, in the Bible, death is not a natural thing. It was, as John Stock calls it, an alien intrusion into God's good world. Yes, there was probably um, death in the animal kingdom before the creation of man, as we're looking at on Sunday evenings. Um, but as we're seeing, humankind was designed as the pinnacle of God's creation. And the lives of the creatures he made in his image, human beings, were not meant to end in death. When Jesus experienced the death of his friend Lazarus, he was outraged, we're told. This was not part of God's design. But although death, both physical and spiritual, was the, the just, the punishment, the inevitable consequences of humankind's rebellion against God, God didn't want to carry out that punishment on his people. His will was to rescue people from death. And what that meant, though, was that he had to overlook the sins of, of his people. It comes out in Romans 3, it says, In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So we've got these two aspects of God's glory, of God's will. His desire for his glory and his desire to save people. And those are set alongside of one another. In Deuteronomy 10, we have them coming together. It says there, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Now the trouble is, these two priorities are opposing priorities which can't be reconciled. If people in their sin reject the glory of God, and God overlooks that sin, then he would not be glorifying his name. He had to come up with a solution that would, would meet these two objectives of demonstrating his glory and saving his people. So how is he going to do that? Well, the way he did that was through a sacrifice. The sacrifice of someone who is perfectly innocent, who would be able to take on himself the punishment for the whole of humankind. Romans 3 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. The prophecy that um, Jesus quoted in verse 37 that we, we looked at and he was numbered with the transgressors that comes from Isaiah 53 which was read um, by Caroline Forrest. Let's just turn to Isaiah 53 if you've got your Bibles handy there. 
Because in Isaiah 53, what it also says is it was the Lord's will, in verse 10, to crush him. This is Jesus he's talking about. And cause him to suffer. The will of the Father to which Jesus was committed was that Jesus would be crushed. Now, if you take that phrase on its own, it's pretty harsh, as much of Isaiah 53 is. Let's look at some of these other verses here. In verse 4, it says, We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. Now knowing all that was going to take place, it's not surprising that Jesus said back in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now why was Jesus full of anguish? Why was... Uh, his death such a terrible thing. Why does he refer to this ordeal as a, a cup that he has to take? We're in the passage in Luke that we're looking at. Jesus is about to experience betrayal, denial. And in verse 63, the, the mocking and the beating of the guards. And all that is just a prelude to his unjust trial and to his death by crucifixion. But however bad these things may be, the picture we have received of Jesus throughout his life is not one who would be afraid of physical and emotional pain and death. Do you remember when Peter tried to persuade Jesus not to go through with his mission, uh, not to allow himself to be killed? He said, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man, not of God. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said to his followers, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. After Jesus had ascended to heaven, his apostles went about preaching. Um, they too were unjustly imprisoned. They were flogged. But when they were released, they came out and said, and they were rejoicing, we're told, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And in the early church, just a, a century after Jesus' death, Polycarp, an 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna, refused to escape death by fleeing, by denying Christ, and was burnt at the stake. And this is what he said. He said, for 80 and six years have I served Christ, and nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if such followers of Christ could face death with such courage, why was the cup such an ordeal for Jesus? Well, because it didn't just symbolize the physical and emotional pain he was about to endure, but also the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world, or rather the punishment that those sins deserved. In the Bible, we read that the cup is a symbol for for God's wrath. In Revelation, we're told that the wicked will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And Jesus is about to drink this cup, which would mean alienation, it would mean abandonment by the Father, with whom he'd been in intimate fellowship since eternity. There was no other way in which the will of God could be fulfilled in both glorifying his name and in saving humankind. Well, if that was the, uh, the plan, then what was Jesus' attitude towards all this? How did he approach it? Because it's been said that Jesus was uh, an unfortunate victim, a victim of cosmic child abuse, maybe a bit like a suicide bomber who's been uh, brainwashed. And it's easy to read this phrase, not my will, but yours be done, and think it means, well, I don't really want to go through with this, but if you insist, then okay. I wonder if we sometimes think of... um, the Father sending Jesus into the world, a bit like a God sending Jonah to Nineveh, as we've been looking at in recent weeks. Jonah didn't want to go, did he? Why? Because um, he was afraid of the Ninevites? Well, no, because he had no compassion on them. He didn't think they deserved to be forgiven. But Jesus is God. And there he was, for he was full of the same compassion as the Father was for his people. And we see that in Jesus' prayers for his disciples. But above all, we see that in his prayers for those who crucified him. When he calls out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus shared the will of the Father. He had the same passion for God's glory. He had the same love and compassion for God's people. And although Jesus says, take this cup from me, that is sandwiched between what he says is submitting to the will of the Father, the plan to which they both agreed. How does the Father answer this prayer? He sends an angel to strengthen him. In other words, he's saying, we both know there is no other way, but here is an angel to strengthen you, to help you do your mission. And with that strength, he is prepared to face what comes next with confidence. Next comes his arrest. He doesn't resist, and when one of his followers followers cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers, he heals it. In the same incident in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then... Would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Or in John's gospel, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus hasn't been kept in the dark. He knows the purpose of the mission. He's fully committed to it. If we go back to to Isaiah 53 again, we see the purpose of that mission. It says the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Through that sacrifice, we are declared righteous. We are declared innocent in the sight of God. And Romans 3 summarizes all this when it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And what that makes clear is that as sinners, we don't need to pay a price for our justification. It is a free gift. And that is what that word grace means. It's free because the price has been paid by someone else, Jesus Christ. And that price is a huge price because it means the the anguish, the ordeal that we've been talking about. But it's because Jesus loves us. It's because Jesus loves his father that he was willing to pay that price. The resurrection that we will celebrate next uh, Sunday on Easter Sunday is a demonstration that the father approves of everything the son has done, that he loves his son, he loves his sacrifice, And it's a reminder that death is not the end. We are told in Isaiah that he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. There is good news ahead. There is victory over sin. There is victory over death to rejoice in. And so the question that remains in the last couple of minutes is what is our response to this whole episode. In some ways, the answer is quite simple because if it's God's will for his glory to be made known, for his people to be saved, then that should be our will as well. So how can we glorify God? Well, firstly, um, by acknowledging the price that Jesus paid for us and his love for us. In the news last week, there was a story of a doctor who, uh, who came to the help of a passenger on the, uh, the flight uh, to Greece. And um, through his actions, um, prevented the flight having to make an emergency diversion, which have co- would have cost uh, the company thousands of pounds. I won't mention which company it was, um, but they expressed their appreciation by offering him a, a free cup of coffee. Um, but he had to pay for the Kit Kat. Now, he didn't offer his help, obviously, to, to get any reward, but you can imagine feeling a little bit miffed that, um, uh, through the lack of appreciation. We've considered the, the anguish that Jesus went through in preparing for his sacrifice and in the ordeal itself, what it meant to carry the burden of the sins of the world. And we've said that he did that willingly because he loved us. And how we respond to that sacrifice will 
determine whether or not we are glorifying God. If we receive that free gift of salvation, we are acknowledging the depth of love that he has for us and the cost of his gift for us. That is glorifying to God. On the other hand, if we reject it, that's to say, I don't really care what you went through for me, what it cost you, or how much you you love me. I don't need it. That is to reject God's glory. There's also another way of glorifying God that comes out in this passage through what his disciples fail to do. And that is by expressing our dependence on him in prayer. As a result of Jesus' prayer, we're told that an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, if Jesus himself can pray for strength in the face of temptation, then how much more do we need to do that? Jesus says to his disciples two times in the other gospel, three times, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus was about to be taken from his disciples. They would be on their own. They needed spiritual strength. They needed to be praying. But they were sleeping exhausted from, from sorrow. And sorrow and grief are exhausting. There's no denying that. But God also provides strength to cope. The disciples' problem was not that they were too tired to pray. It was they didn't see their need to pray. They trusted in their own strength for what lay ahead. Do you remember what Jesus, uh, Peter said last, uh, last week that we looked at? You know, I'll never deny you, Jesus. You know, I'll go to, to death for you. What do we ha- see happening in the next um, few instants when they awake? First of all, they try to stop Jesus' mission by drawing a sword, which was against, completely against his, his plan. They scarper. They desert him. Peter denies Jesus. And they spend the next couple of days in hiding, fearing for their lives. But let's face it, we're no better, are we? Uh, I think when it comes to, to prayer, we often think there's something we do when we have a need when things are desperate, when we've tried to cope ourselves and now we need some extra help. But I'm not sure if we realize how much of an insult that is to God. God had an angel that he sent to Jesus. He would have had an angel to send to each one of his disciples if they'd asked him, but they didn't. Last week I mentioned the importance of preventative prayer. And I've been convicted again this week of our need to be praying constantly for protection, protection against the devil and his ways. We may think we are fine now, but we underestimate the ways in which he gets into our lives, and we overestimate our ability to cope with that and protect ourselves. Jesus told his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, as we finish, in being willing to die for us, Jesus showed his amazing love for us. He dealt with our biggest problem. He showed he was able to deal with it. He showed he was willing to deal with it. We could do nothing about the punishment we deserve for our sin and our rejection of God. And we can do nothing about our ongoing temptation to sin. To try and do things in our own strength is to reject God's glory and seek our glory. To ask for God's help 
is to acknowledge his limitless power and his limitless love. It is to glorify him. Let's have a, a moment of quiet, just uh, thinking on Jesus' sacrifice, what he went through, why he did it, and the love that prompted him to do it. And let's think about how we can glorify God with our lives as we give thanks for the gift of salvation. And as we seek his daily strength in prayer to seek to live lives worthy of him. A moment of quiet just to lift your needs before God. Father God, we thank you for the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross for us. And this week leading up to the events of that first Easter, help us to be full of gratitude, of appreciation for what prompted him to do that, his great love for us, his desire to see us saved from the punishment we deserve. We thank you that he took that for us so that we can be made right with you. We can have peace with you. We can enjoy our relationship with you. And we thank you for all the blessings of knowing you. And Father, help us to seek your strength in our daily lives. Help us not to try and do things in our strength, to think we can, can do it all. Thank you for the strength you offer. And we thank you that we can take advantage of that. In Jesus' name, amen.